You are listening to a message from Adam Reardon at Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois. At Redemption Church, we are all about introducing people into a growing relationship with Jesus. If you would like more information, check us out online at redemption.cc. Now stay tuned for today's message. Hey, uh, one of the things that I was thinking about this, uh, this week or this morning as we were getting ready for uh, the worship gathering is uh, something that, that's probably we all do, we all have in common, and that's uh, grocery shopping. And, and if you've ever been to the grocery store, you ever notice uh, the stuff you really want is usually on the middle shelf, right? That's where like, the, good, the good stuff is. Uh, the stuff that like when you're cooking a recipe uh, that you've never used before, that's usually way up high or way up low. And if you go to places like Costco, they even have stuff like so high that people need special equipment to get it. And, and sometimes when we study the Bible, uh, there's stuff that I call like the mid-shelf. It's just stuff that we can all relate to. Sometimes there's the low shelf stuff that you have to kind of work to get for. Then there's the high shelf stuff where you might even have to ask assistance for. Uh, today we're in the mid-shelf. Okay, This is something that I think without a lot of work, uh, we're all going to relate to. I think God has some words he wants to speak into our hearts and our lives today through the book of Malachi. So uh, before we jump in, let me pray for us. Uh, Father God, we come before you in the name of Jesus this morning. And God, we ask that you'd be with us. God, I pray that as we examine your word this morning, that it would be more than just words written on a page, but it would be your living, holy, active word. God, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts to love you. Uh, give us eyes to see you, ears to hear you this morning. Uh, God, I pray you'd even reveal in, in our own lives, our own hearts, the lies that we've believed, the things that hold us back, the things that uh, we need to be transformed into the power and the image of Jesus, your Holy Son, this morning. So God, I pray that you would meet with us. I, I pray that you would be glorified in the way that we handle your word and the way we respond to it this morning. I pray that you would be glorified, that you would be pleased, and that we would leave here changed people because of who you are and what you desire to do in our lives. Jesus, in your great name that we pray. Amen. Well, we've been going through the book of Malachi, and one of the things that I think is really interesting as we start the book of Malachi, that, that God's going to continue to speak over and over and over again, is the fact that he is a good father who loves his children. That that's really the, the best way uh, for us to look at God. That's the context in which he asks us to kind of look at the relationship with him, that uh, we, because of Jesus, would be his adopted sons, his adopted daughters, and he would be like a father. And so in the context of that relationship, that uh, God is a father who loves us, a God who provides for us, a God who cares for us, there's provision, uh, a God who even battles for us on our behalf, that in him is our safety, our refuge, our strength, that, that sometimes God even would, would use a word that we don't like to use, but discipline us for us good, to grow us up, to teach us his ways. However, there's something in your life and my life that I think we all have in common that kind of clouds our view of God, our thoughts of God, even our love of God, and that's pain. That any time in your life, in my life, that we experience things like pain, suffering, hardship, heartbreak, heartache, is it can get a little bit cloudy. That we can even forget about who God is. In fact, uh, the reality is, is that none of us like pain. Every single one of us would do whatever we could do to avoid those things. None of us are looking for more suffering. None of us are looking for more hardship. None of us are looking for more heartbreak. But the reality is, our lives are plagued with it. That, that I, I tell people all the time that either you are currently in the midst of suffering, 
you've just come out of an overwhelming situation, or in your life you can see the storm brewing on the horizon heading your way, that we all have that in common. And yet as we study the book of Malachi this morning, uh, one of the things that God speaks to us, one of the things he's going to tell us is that there's always hope in the hardship. Uh, there's always hope in the struggle. There's always hope in the pain. That he would go as far to say things like, there is light in the darkness. There is gain after loss. There is strength in our weakness. There is hope even when there are tears. There's peace even when we experience pain. That there's joy that always comes after sorrow. There's even rest that comes in weariness. And his name is Jesus. That we can always have hope no matter what's going on in our lives or around our lives. In fact, one of the things that's really interesting is that God never promises us that he would prevent us from experiencing pain or struggle. That there's not one single promise in the Bible where God says, hey, if you give your life to me, it'll be easy. He never makes that promise. In fact, Jesus promises us the opposite. He promises us that in our life, we will face trouble. He says it this way in John chapter 16, verse 33. He says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. So the promise is peace, not lack of struggle. I've said these things to you so that you may have peace because in this world you will have tribulation. That's a biblical word for trouble. He says, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. In fact, one of the big truths we're going to see in the book of Malachi today is this, is that the furnace of affliction in the family of God is always for refinement and never for destruction. Uh, we're going to see that the furnace of affliction in the family of God is always for refinement and never for destruction. Maybe another way to think of it is like this. There's always purpose in our pain. While we're never promised that there won't be trouble, in fact, we're promised that there will be, what we are promised is that there's always purpose in the struggle. There's always purpose in the pain, that it's never wasted, that you have never wasted a moment of your struggle. You've never wasted a moment of conflict. You've never wasted a tear. There's always purpose in the pain. And it's interesting because we don't normally think of it like that. Uh, there's, there's Bible verses that kind of annoy us. Things like, consider it joy, my brothers, when you face trouble. You're like, no one's ever done that before. Like your boss has never walked into your office and laid trouble on your desk, and you're like, sweet, that's awesome. Like you've never got that phone call where there was trouble on the other side and through a little party, and yet the Bible promises us that there's purpose in the pain. Now, what's true for all of us is when we experience this kind of stuff, when we experience struggle, conflict, heartache, heartbreak, one of the things that happens is, is, is we kind of want to know why. You ever done that before? That you're faced with a situation and, and there's these questions that we have, questions like, why? Why me? Why now? Why this? I had the privilege of, of doing a, a funeral this week for a family. And, you know, that was kind of the question that came up over and over and over again. Why? And the reality is, is that I don't have an answer. And the reality is, is usually when we ask God those why questions, he never really provides us with an answer. And see, the reason I bring this up is because this is what's going on in the nation of Israel. 
Is there some strife? There's some trouble? There's some heartache? The nation of Israel is kind of being bullied and ruled over by a foreign nation. And so what's happening is they're allowing their circumstances to define who God is. Rather than defining their circumstances based on who their God is, they're saying, hey, God, because of this, because of the struggle, because of the hardship, because of the conflict, it causes us to question who you are because we look around the landscape, we see the things that are happening, and we wonder who you are because of what's happening. They're asking and saying things that we've asked and things that we've even said. Like, hey, God, if you're really all-powerful, hey, God, if you really sit on the throne, if you're really good, if you really love me a father, then why in the world am I going through this? And it's not just like a one-time thing. The nation of Israel is kind of stuck in this pattern of why God, why me, who are you, are you good, can I love you, because look at my circumstances, why, why, why. Look at the way the prophet Malachi says it in Malachi 2.17. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Now, this is an interesting statement if you camp out it long enough. Almighty, all-powerful, inexhaustible God is telling the nation of Israel, you're wearing me out. Like, I'm inexhaustible, but you're exhausting me. I, I hold the star and the moon in the sky, and yet you guys tire me out. And they ask the question, how? And he says, how have we wearied him out? And he says, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, here's, here's what I think the scriptures are revealing. I think this is what's happening, and, and it, can, it can happen in your life, and my life is not careful, is one of the things that, that Israel stands before God is they just demand answers of him. Why, 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 why? And it's not that God can't handle the question, but instead what's happening in the questioning is the questions aren't questions, they're becoming accusations. So it's, hey, why God is this happening is turning to, God, I don't believe you love me. Hey, God, why, is, why am I experiencing this struggle is turning to, God, I don't know if you're really good. Hey, God, why, why the trouble is turning into, are you really holy? Are you really good? Do you really love me? Are you really powerful? And so the book of Malachi is actually God responding to the, ask, the, the accusations or the disputations, the disputes of the nation of Israel. And God said, it just kind of wears me out that you don't trust me. It wears me out that you don't put your faith in me. It wears me out that you, every time you have some sort of trouble or heartache, you come back and want to know why. And yet they take it one step further. And not only do they want answers, but they want action. Now what's interesting is, it's not that they want God to show up and just change their situation. But they want God to do something. And what the scriptures reveal is they say, hey, where's the God of justice? Which means what happens is, is, is the nation of Israel has kind of deduced or they've kind of made this assumption that the reason that they're going through what they're going through is because God is somehow punishing them. And so what happens is there's, there's this religious thought that kind of enters our mind that says maybe the reason I'm going through what I'm going through is because God is somehow punishing me. Like maybe I've deserved it. Like sometimes we wonder, is God just kind of after us? Does God just punish us? Is he kind of like there to, to allow bad things to happen to us because we've 
sinned or because we're not what we want to be or who we think we should be? Is that how God operates? And so what happens in their thought process is they go, hey, God, we know that we've messed up, but we know people worse than us. So if you would treat us this way, we know people you should treat worse than us. And so part of their problem is they look around at wicked people. They look around at people who don't have a relationship with the Lord, and they're going, well, how come they prosper? How come they're not experiencing what we're experiencing? How come they're not going through what they're going through? And so the question is this, God, how come you don't pour out your wrath on them in the midst of my struggle? And isn't it true that we can think that way too? That we look around and we say, hey, God, how come, how come they're not going through a harder time? God, if you're doing this to me, how come you're not doing this to them? And see, what's interesting is this thing can happen in our hearts where for us we desire grace. Hey, God, would you treat me better than I deserve? But to other people, we would pray for God's justice. Hey, God, I, I deserve your grace, but you know what they should get? They should get your wrath and your justice. And see, first Peter, Peter addresses us and he says, it's not that God is, that God is slow, it's that God is patient. That God, if God gave us all what we deserved, it would mean we all would get hell today. That's what we deserve. But rather, God is a God of grace and a God of patience. And so God's speaking to the entire nation of Israel through Malachi, and he goes, I know you're hurting. I know you're troubled. I know you don't understand. I know you want answers. I know you want misdirected action. And God redirects the conversation. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about God is that he never promises us that he will give us the answers we want. But he always offers us something better. See, God never promises to give us answers, but he always promises us to give us his presence. And so that's what he speaks to the nation of Israel. He goes, I know you want answers, but I'm going to give you something better. Because the reality is the answer that we would receive would never satisfy us. Like if you want to do some homework, you can go home and, and read through the book of Job. And Job's question is, why God? Why me? Why my family? Why now? And God's response to Job is, the answer will never satisfy you. So he asks some questions like, hey, when I laid the foundation of the world, where were you? Hey, when I laid the grains of sand on the sea, could you, do you remember how many grains of sand there are? When I hung the stars in the sky, do you remember how many stars we hung? Do you know the thickness of the Leviathan's back? Job says, I don't know any of those things. And what God begins to reveal to us is answers don't really satisfy us. But his presence will. So what God begins to speak to the entire nation of Israel is, hey, I know you want answers, but I have something better than answers. I'm going to give myself to you. That the answers we seek are really discovered in the presence of God in our lives. In fact, 150 times in the Bible, God says, fear not, because I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. That God tells us that we can never fear because of his presence. He never says, fear not, because I have answers for you. He says that we can fear not, because he promises us that he will always be with us, that we'll never be far from his presence, that he'll never leave us abandon us or forsake us.
And see, the only thing worse than suffering is suffering alone. And so God begins to speak to their suffering, maybe like he's speaking to our suffering. And the reality is, is that sometimes we need a counselor to help us work through stuff, but more times than not, what we really need is a comforter. Someone to say, I'm with you, you're not alone, I love you, I'm here for you, I'll comfort you. That's exactly what God begins to speak into the nation of Israel. It's the same thing he speaks to us. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, behold. Now, I love this because uh, sometimes as we read through, through books of the Bible like Malachi, you have to put yourself in the place of Malachi for just a second. That you are God's mouthpiece to an entire nation. That the people are documenting what you're saying so that they can take it to the people because you're speaking the literal, physical word of God to people. And he's delivering this message and he says, Behold. Now, I, I don't want to bore you with the literal meanings of Old Testament words and that kind of stuff. But here's how to think about that world, behold. Behold is like the life raft in a storm. He says, I know your struggle. I know your pain. But when he says, behold, he says, I'm about to answer this for you. You're drowning and I'm about to throw you a life raft. Behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now I think Malachi, being inspired by God through the power of the Holy Spirit, communicates two people are coming. And they're the answer, they're the presence of God on earth that we need to look for. I want to walk through this because I think it's important because here's, here's what God is saying. God is saying his presence is coming to the earth. He says there's a messenger coming and there's one coming who will fulfill the temple. And this is really interesting because most religions teach that we, through the process of being religious or we, through the process of trying to be good, somehow try to work our way or ascend our way to God. The Bible, however, teaches that God comes to us that God leaves heaven and descends to earth to meet with us. And see, that's the, the whole point of the temple in the Old Testament. The Old Testament temple is the house of God. It is high, it exalted, it is holy ground because it, it is the resting place of God. The physical, literal presence of God rests behind the curtain in the holy of holies that if you ever needed a reminder, is God with us, you look to the temple. Now, the whole point of the temple is that God is resting with his people on earth, that the temple is literally where heaven meets earth, that this is the intersecting point between God and his people. Now, we look back through the temple through the context of Jesus and realize that the whole point of the temple was to get people ready to meet Jesus. Everything about the temple was about the one who was coming. So, hey, there's this one place that man can't go that God dwells. There's priests who intercede between God and man through prayers and through the, the giving of sacrifices and through their duties and tasks. There's sacrifices that are made that by the lamb that was blood that was shed that people could be forgiven. That there was places that you could go and pray and be heard by God. That the whole function, the whole architecture, the whole temple was literally 
Heaven meeting earth, a place to go meet and be with God. And God says, but there's one whom is coming. And the way you'll know he is coming is because he will go into the temple. And he says, what's interesting is he himself will fulfill the temple. See, my presence will no longer be behind the curtain. He will be my presence. And so we have to ask the question, who is it that is coming? Well, I think the first person that God is talking about in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, is John the Baptist. He says, behold, I'm going to send my messenger who prepares the way. Well, we know in the New Testament that that's John the Baptist, the John the baptizer, the one who comes to prepare the way for the Lord, that John would announce the coming of the Messiah, that John would be the one that announces, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That every Thanksgiving in our house, I don't know what kind of traditions you have, but every Thanksgiving in our house as we get ready for that Thanksgiving meal, there's cooking going on in the kitchen, uh, there's always the Thanksgiving holiday parade that is on every year. It's not always watched, but it's on. And I can even remember as a kid growing up that my grandmother had a little black and white TV. It was probably this big, and it was on top of her refrigerator. And so even when we were in my grandmother's house for Thanksgiving and there was cooking going on, the parade was always on above the TV on this little black and white TV with rabbit ears. And some of you are too young to know what that is, but I remember. And every Thanksgiving Day parade starts with a grand marshal. It starts with someone who announces the arrival of the parade. And every Thanksgiving Day parade ends with Santa coming on his sleigh. And the only reason I share that with you is because John the Baptist is like the Grand Marshal. He's the one coming saying, he is coming. Get ready. The special guest is here. He's on his way. Yeah, I don't want you to, to miss him. That John is the guy who is humble. He is the guy that declares that who Jesus is. That John literally has the privilege by God that he is the one that points to Jesus and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In fact, I think often we, we forget about the importance of John. How that Jesus in Matthew eleven eleven said, of men born by women on earth. So he, Jesus says, hey, he's not greater than I am. He goes, you know, I don't have a physical dad, got a physical mom, but John's got a mom and a dad. And he says, of those kind of people, there's been no one greater born. He's like, there's no one greater than my cousin, John. And that's like a big recommendation, especially coming from Jesus. He says, of all the men, John's the guy. And that John's humble. He is a proclaimer. And that John so knows Jesus being the fulfillment of all that literally one of the things that happens is when Jesus shows up on the scene, John goes, my ministry's over. Like my, my ministry was to, to, to prepare the way, to declare the truth that he was coming. And now that he's come, John just hands all the ministry to Jesus and says, I don't want to stand in your way. I'm, the, I'm not even fit to take off your sandals. And John's great privilege was to baptize Jesus. And then John hands over his disciples to Jesus. And in fact, some of the most earliest followers of Jesus first were followers of John. 
And I think that just speaks to his belief that Jesus shows up and John's like, don't follow me anymore. I can only tell you about him. Now go be with him. And he hands over his disciples to Jesus. Now the other person that, 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 that God's talking to the nation of Israel about is Jesus himself. That he says, hey, I'm sending the one. I'm sending my presence to you. And this is really awesome because this is prophecy. About 25% of the Old Testament is prophecy. God giving us things to look forward to, signs and things that we will know that he is sending and doing the things that he said he was doing. Now, this is really interesting because if you speak to a Jewish person today and you said, who are you waiting for? They would say, we're waiting for the Messiah to come. Here's the problem. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, God says, the one, the messenger, my presence, will come to what? Where's he going to show up at? The temple. The temple's destroyed in 70 AD. That means the Messiah had to come before 70 AD. It means the, the coming of the Messiah is gone. The Messiah can't come to a temple that doesn't physically exist. And so one of the things that God does, even 400 years before the coming of Jesus, he goes, this is how you'll know he's going to come into the temple. There's going to be one that comes before him and prepares the way for him. So John is a sign of the prophecy of Jesus. Jesus going into the temple is a prophecy that he really is the son of God, sent by God, where heaven no longer meets earth in the temple. Heaven now meets earth in Jesus. And wherever he goes, the kingdom goes with him because he is the king of kings. And then when Jesus dies on the cross for our sins and raises on the third day, he says, no, 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 wait, now you have to receive my Holy Spirit. And then he goes and he is seated at the right hand of his father. And now the presence of Jesus is everywhere through the, the Holy Spirit. There's scriptures that say things like, no matter where you go, there's no cave too deep, no sea too low, no sky, no high. There's absolutely nothing that can separate us from the presence and the love of God because he has given himself to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And see, when God begins to speak to the hurting, to the frustrated, to the confused, he says, you, you want answers, but I have something better for you. His name is Jesus. He says, there's light in the darkness, gain after loss. There's strength in your weakness. There's hope even when there's tears. There's peace even though there's pain. There's joy after sorrow. There's rest after weariness. And his name is Jesus. And then he gives us perspective. Matthew, or Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. He says, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire in the fuller's soap. So don't miss this. You have to ask the question, well, who is the he? Well, it's Jesus. You could take out the word he and read it this way, but who can adore the day of his coming and who can stand when Jesus appears? For Jesus is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. Now, I don't want us to miss this. Because in the Christian world, in our little Christian culture, we love to turn Jesus into the cool, mellow guy who holds baby lambs and has beautiful panting Pro-V hair and just is really, really nice and would probably give you a hug every time he saw you. And yet God says, hey, that's all probably true. 
But don't forget that he's also like a refiner's fire. But don't forget that Jesus is also like the fuller's soap. Verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then to the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, just as in former years. God says, you know the whole problem? The problem that you don't know me and you don't love me and you don't honor me and you don't worship me. The whole thing I've told you that I don't really even like your offerings anymore and I wish you would just shut down the temple because it's not doing what I originally wanted to do. He goes, you know what the answer is to all of that? Jesus. And he will show up to you and, and he will be like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. And he says your offering will be pleasing again the relationship will be restored. There'll be restoration between us and God. But only for those who believe. Because verse 5 is a little scary. He says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now this is interesting because we in our Christian little hearts and our Christian little mindsets, we read the first few verses as like that's for the church. And we like to read verse 5 as that's for the world, but don't forget who God's talking to. He's talking to his people. He's saying, some of you who call yourself my sons and my daughters, these are the things you're guilty of. And see, what God begins to speak to us is that his first coming, the first coming of Jesus is all about salvation. But his second coming is all about judgment. That his first coming is to gather his people, to make his name known so that, so that he can tell us about his love for us, the forgiveness and the grace that's available to us. But his second coming is when he will come and he will deal harshly and quickly with his enemies. And I love the way that God communicates this to us, that Jesus is like a cleaner. That we don't often think about him this way, but it's true that God is like a cleaner. That's what he's referring to when he talks about the fuller's Soap. So we like this one because uh, most of us, somewhere in our car or ladies in your purses or somewhere in your home, you carry hand sanitizer with you because we like to be clean. Especially if you have kids around, you are sanitizing their hands constantly because there's germs and nasty stuff out there. And, and what God says is, listen, God is like a cleaner. This is why we put soap by the sink. We have soap for dishes, soap for laundry. You can even buy soap for your car, your floors, and your countertops. We love to clean things. And so this week, as you clean things, just remember that Jesus cleans with you. That Jesus is a cleaner. And see, according to the Scripture, what happens is when we sin... When we rebel against God, when we miss the mark and choose other ways, legally, we are guilty. Practically before God, we are unclean. And what happens is, is Jesus cleanses us. That Jesus is like our hand sanitizer, but for our hearts and for our sin and for our soul. 
that, that one of the beautiful images all throughout the Bible is that the church is white and pure. That, that one of the reasons that, that the church has talked about wearing white robes is because Jesus has cleansed us and purified us of our sins. That there's not a stain, a wrinkle, or a blemish, but we're made new and we're made clean. But see, if you have dogs or kids or people in your house frequently, you know that things that are cleaned once often need cleaned again and again and again. And so we we like the soap one because that's cute and that's fun. But God says, don't forget that every single one of us still has hurts, habits, and hang-ups. That every single one of us, although we're forgiven and made new and clean, we still wrestle with the flesh. We still have struggles with sin. And one of the things that God desires to do inside every single one of us is transform us into the image and the likeness of Jesus. And so God says one of the ways Jesus does that in your life, in my life, is like a refiner. Now, I don't watch a ton of TV just because like you can spend a lot of money on TV and like sit down and click through it and there's still nothing ever on. You ever do that? You're like, I have 700 channels with Comcast. What's on, honey? Nothing, right? You can do that. So I'm like picky about what I watch. Like I like to select my shows and my wife makes fun of the shows I watch. And uh, one of the shows I watch are like shows about guys that go out into like the woods and dig and find gold. Because like, I've never gone out in the woods and came back richer. That's never happened. But I like to see guys that can. And like, you know, there's like shows where guys are like, hey, let's go buy a bunch of equipment and go up to Alaska and dig for gold. And like if somebody invited me to do that, I would go for a while. Just, I just think it'd be awesome. And so they, they, you know, get all this dirt and they dump it into stuff and there's all this separating. And then they end up with a pile of stuff and it never looks that great. Like if you've ever watched any of those gold shows, it's like there's gold, but there's also like weird looking stuff in there. And so before the gold is really valuable, it goes to a refiner. And what the refiner does, he dumps everything into a pile and he puts it in a furnace. And then he turns up the heat. And see, as the heat intensifies, what happens is the purity, the gold and the silver that's pure actually gets heavier and sinks to the bottom. But the impurities, the dirt, the gravel, the muck, rises to the top. And so as the two separate, the refiner just keeps scooping the impurities off the top. And he'll continue to do it as long as, as long as the impurities keep floating to the top. And then once it's done, he takes the leftover melted gold out, puts it into a cast that's about the shape of a bar, and then he sees what it looks like. And what I read, I don't know because no one's ever asked me to purify their gold, is they say that they know that gold and silver is pure when the refiner can actually begin to see his reflection in it. That that's the standard of purity. Can I see my reflection? Now what happens is, is I think God is communicating to you and to me that that's one of the things that Jesus does in our lives. Is that sometimes in your life and in my life, what happens is God turns up the heat. That sometimes we live in the furnace of the refiner's fire. But what we've believed is the lie that if something's hard or hurtful, it must not be good for us. 
But the truth of Scripture is that sometimes we go through hard things, difficult things, things that cause pain, because Jesus is like a refiner, and he's trying to get out the impurities of our lives, and sometimes we have to live over the fire. And so you might ask yourself, like, hey, Adam, life is already hard. Why would we start a message with a video that hits us in the feels? Why would we spend time talking about heartache, struggle, and pain? Why don't you encourage us a little bit? See, that's exactly what I think Jesus wants to do. Because what happens, or what tends to happen, is we think because there's struggle, or because there's pain, or because there's tears, we think these thoughts, and I'll say them so that you don't have to, we begin to wonder if God still loves us. We begin to wonder if God's even still with us. We begin to wonder if things like if God's punishing us. We begin to wonder that even though we're saved by Jesus and we believe the truth that nothing can snatch us out of the hand, but maybe the devil is at work in our lives and he's winning. And see, here's why this has so much hope in it, even though it's hard. It's because what God is communicating to us and what he's communicating to the, to the nation of Israel is that the furnace of affliction in the family of God is always for our refinement and never for our destruction. It means the hardship you're going through isn't meant to destroy you. It's, me- it's so that you'll be better off. That you've never wasted a tear. You've never wasted a moment of struggle. That when we live over the refiner's fire, there's time that he turns up the heat. And it's not because he doesn't love you. It's because he loves you so much that he doesn't want to leave you the way you are. He wants to make you more like his son. And sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's painful. It means that there's these promises that there's purpose in your struggle. Listen, the thing that you're struggling with right now, the thing that you've been causing doubt in your life, the thing that you've been wrestling with, it's that God wants to make you into the image of his son and he's using that to do it. It means you no longer have to wonder, does God love you? He does love you. He's promised you, just like he's promised the nation of Israel, he'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you. There is nothing that can separate you from his love. It means that some of you walked in here today wondering if God is punishing you, and he's not. He loves you. And don't ever allow your circumstances to define God's love for you. You define your circumstances based on God's love for you. It means you've never wasted a moment of struggle. It means that every moment of hardship in your life is God at work in your life. That's why for those of you Bible scholars in the room, if you remember the story of Joseph, that after everything he goes through, he meets his brothers, who, by the way, threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery, got him locked in jail, and he said, what you meant for my harm, what you meant for evil, my God meant for my good. That he's that big of a God. It means when the heat gets turned up in our lives that we walk by faith. See, the thing that Malachi is calling the entire nation of Israel to do is is this word that we don't often like, but it's important. He's saying, hey, walk by faith, but the way he says it is fear God. And what he means by fear God is this. He means fear to dishonor God or disbelieve him. Fear the irreverence of not trusting him. Fear the impulse to jump out of the refining fire. 
It means even when life gets hard and things are difficult, trust the goodness of God. Preach to yourself, he is a good, good father and he loves me. He is a good, good father and he loves me. Believe that his ways are the only ways to infinite joy. And don't doubt his expertise is a refiner. God is consistently and constantly refining you. That God is the only God who descended from heaven and came to earth so that he could take broken things and turn them into beautiful things through his son Jesus, who is like a refiner's fire in a fuller salt. It means that in the family of God, the furnace of affliction was never meant for your destruction. It was meant for your purification and for your good. And so let God's good word speak into your struggle this morning. He loves you. He's with you. He's refining you. It's all for his glory. And it's all for your good. Let me pray for us. Thanks again for listening to this message from Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois where we believe faith is a journey, not a guilt trip. Listen again next week, but in the meantime, visit us at redemption.cc.